So, generally speaking, we remember, we rather intentionally remember, two things every year. And I mean, as the body of Christ in North America, we have two major Christian events, which are, of course, Christmas and Easter. Right. So, and, and that makes sense. That those are uh, the two greatest miracles, really, that are recorded in the Bible. Uh, the coming of God to earth, not as a projected image or sort of this ethereal uh, thing, but as God incarnate, God in the flesh, born, a, a human being, and remaining so for all eternity. God and humanity reconciled first in the very person of Jesus Christ. That is Christmas. As incredible as that is, and that is incredible, and it might even lead a person uh, to worship, just to reflect on how amazing that is, and to awe, but that fact on its own doesn't impact my life or your life in any immediate, tangible fashion. Whereas the crucifixion and the resurrection impact my life, and I hope yours too, more than anything else on this earth. When it com- Thank you. Yes. <laughs> When it comes to events that have taken place on this globe, on this blue globe of Earth, that, that surpasses everything in terms of things that have impacted my life. It was the defining moment in the life of Christ, and it's the defining moment of my life as well, and of many of yours. And the Gospels bear this out. The Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, clearly the resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection are the event of the life of Jesus. I mean, the whole Gospel builds up to it. Uh, In fact, in John's gospel, uh, the Holy Week takes up, I think, about a third of the whole gospel. So right there in the gospels, you have the witness of how central uh, these events are. Um, As as those of you who have been in this church for a while know, I'm not really a big Christmas person. I mean, I love the incarnation, don't get me wrong, but I'm not a huge Christmas guy. Easter and Good Friday, I I really love. Because those events changed my life, and they changed my life forever. I did not witness them, as you well know. I'm old, not that old. I'm not even really that old compared to some of you, but I digress. That wasn't written in there. I just threw that out. That's, yeah, that's right. The important thing is we're all headed the same direction. It doesn't matter how young you are. You're all headed the same direction. Bill, not everything that goes through your mind has to come out of your... Um, anyway... I wasn't there at the crucifixion and the resurrection, but daily they breathe life into my soul. Uh, They shine light into the darkness, and there is darkness in me, as there is darkness in all of you. And through them, the Holy Spirit turns bitterness into hope and turns my weaknesses into blessings. It doesn't just get rid of my weaknesses. That's one uh, uh, one of the surprising things about following God to me is that my weaknesses actually can be changed to blessings, not just weaknesses. Uh, And in fact, the weaker I get, sometimes the stronger God becomes in my life. So Jesus may be God, I would argue that he is. And he may be good, and I would argue that he is that also, and perfect, and perfectly loving. But to me, that's nothing more than a, a data point, a fact, unless it somehow impacts my life. Because that's a, sure, that's a beautiful thing to say and whatnot, but kind of parentheses, so what? And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, and if you could put that first slide, Caleb, I appreciate it. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. My preaching may be useless anyway, but certainly if Christ has not been raised, 
Amen. It's useless. Thank you. <laughs> Such a mistake. Um, anyway, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Amen. Amen. That's right. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. And back then, by the way, false witnesses were killed. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. This is part of a longer argument in Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Christmas has no bearing on that. Easter does. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Those who have died are also lost. We're all lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because, boy, are we barking up the wrong tree. What if there was no resurrection? What then? Pity me. Pity us all. We who hold to this hope. Because we're deluded and we're propagating a false hope. It all comes crumbling down without the resurrection. If Christ is not risen, who spoke to Paul? on the road to Damascus, and who led him to preach the resurrected Christ throughout the Roman Empire, not the risen Christ. And if all that was mere delusion or wishful thinking or whatever you want to put to it, then what are we to think of Luke's biography, Paul's friend and uh, co-worker, that we just spent two years going through the Gospel of Luke? Well, that was a big, fat waste of time. And, you know, so on and so forth. It's a domino effect that impacts everything. Not in the same way... Not, nothing else has that centrality as the resurrection does. If Jesus didn't walk on water, okay, whatever. <laughs> but if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if that tomb still had a body in it, or someone stole it or what have you, well then, we're a bunch of idiots. Uh-oh. <laughs> Let us pray. <laughs> no, there's more, Kevin. You, you don't, yeah. <laughs> It's good to know what's going through people's minds, though, during the sermon, isn't it? Uh, where's he going with this? <laughs> um, anyway, Paul goes on, and uh, if you can put up, thank you. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Eh? Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as an Adam, all don't get hung up on gender here, it's just human beings. For as death came through human beings, so life comes through human beings. Uh, so as an Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. Hallelujah. Amen. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, the first of the resurrection, and then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, and by that, he means, among other things, our dominion, authority, and power that we took from God, or that we take from God every, every day, that which is rightfully His. Christ is the first fruits, the first harvest of what God is doing in the world. It's hard to get our mind around, and we can reflect on it at length, but it was God who first experienced what God was first doing in the world, the resurrection. And Yeshua, Jesus, the first Christian in many ways, and we all follow after him. And so we must die, too, to be reborn. And that is, if you're wondering and curious, the central thesis of what I'm saying this morning, that we must die, too, to be reborn. 
from the Gospel of John, the, the words of Christ. I don't have that up here. Just uh, listen very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. It cannot be a kept at arm's length kind of thing. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Amen. So what does it mean to die? tells us that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Uh, someone, was that you, posted on Facebook recently a thing about a... It's joy. It was joy, sorry. Uh, about a seed falling into the ground and dying. And now if you didn't know that what that seed was doing was producing new life, it would look like it was being destroyed. I mean, the husk crumbles and dissolves and it starts to get all, you know, warped. It looks like it's dying. Sometimes we look like we're dying when really we're coming back to life. It says we must die in order to be reborn. But the Word of God, as I think most of you know, is not talking about our physical, natural death. We all experience that, obviously. Everybody experiences that. Not all are saved. We must die before we die, is what the gospel is saying. We must die before we die. Our natural deaths are not something we look for or desire or embrace. God knows. Not usually, not healthily. But the death the gospel speaks about, we must walk towards willingly, even joyfully. Even though we have the power and sometimes even the desire to not embrace it. I'll say it again. We have the power to not embrace our death. And sometimes we have the desire to not embrace our death. When Jesus was walking towards Golgotha with the cross, he did not want to be in such pain. This was not a fun time. (laughs) He did not want to die such a painful and humiliating death. Nobody would. And moreover, he had the power at any time to be done with the charade of what was happening, that we were forcing this upon him. At any time, that could have been finished. He could have said no more, righteously, without being sinful or selfish or arrogant, he could have said no. But he kept the illusion that we can make God do our bidding. And indeed, that's an important illusion that each of us has in our hearts, that we can make God do our bidding, or that we can do our bidding apart from God, however you want to frame it or phrase it. That's an important illusion, because that's where the crux of our decisions lie, our will or your will. And it has to be a decision. Likewise, we too must die. Even though we don't always, as I said, desire it, and even though we have the power not to die, God grants us that free will. You can choose to live for yourself on this earth and do whatever you wish. You can format your life strictly by your own wishes and what's best for you personally. You can do that. You can. You have the power to do that as given by God. I mean, it may turn out well for you. It may turn out poorly, but that's neither here nor there. You can... Pursue that end. For example, uh, diving into some of my temptations in this regard, may not be yours, fill in the blank for you, 
But you can say that your greatest desire is to travel and see the world. You can say that. You say, that is what I want to do with my life. I'm here for a few decades. I want to travel and see the beauty of God's creation and be an adventurer. I want my life to be an adventure. And I will take God along with me. And I'll see him on Sundays, to be sure. And even more, I'll be a nice person. And on my travels, I'll do nice, generous things for other people. That's the life I want. That's the life I will live. I'm not going to consult with God about it. I'm just not. It's my life, and I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I trust in God. He's over here, right by my side. <laughs> See, God and me, buds. I'm going to lead my life like that, and that's a good life, and people are going to be blessed by me. Well, those... Folks who have died to themselves see the sin in there pretty easily. Christians who have died to themselves embrace God's kingdom over their own wants and their own desires. Not, and this is a very key important point about this dying to ourselves, which I will read here in just a second. <laughs> um, not that we don't still have desires and hopes. Right? We all do. And we all should. And we're made that way. We're supposed to have desires and hopes. Amen? Amen. And it's starting to fade a little bit. But that's okay. It's, it's a good 10 minutes in the sermon. Fading is what happens. We still have desires and hopes, and some of them are very good. Christians trust God's plan over their own. They're willing to sacrifice their hopes for God's greater kingdom. They trust God's plan over their own, and they're willing to sacrifice their hopes, and indeed, their life, quite literally, physically, and their money and everything for God's kingdom. God's plans come first. God wants you to have the desires of your heart. I really believe that. I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I don't get into the health and wealth stuff. It's much deeper than that. The problem for me with the health and wealth preaching is that it's too shallow. It doesn't go deep enough. Health and wealth are all temporary, right? I want the deeper blessings of life, the ones that aren't temporary. God's plans come first, and they involve your great blessing. And I'm going to embarrass Melanie for a second, not because, uh, just because it was the most recent example I could think of, although others of you have similar examples that I could share as well, of God's plans coming first. Well, Melanie, how long have you wanted to move to Colorado? Twelve years. Twelve years. Melanie has wanted to move to Colorado for 12 years, and she has not, not because she wasn't able to or couldn't find a job there, or I presume. I mean, there were, she felt called to do things here. And some of you know what some of those things are. And others of you have similar testimonies. And Melanie, where are you moving in a few months, to our great dismay? <laughs> Colorado. And she shared with us about that, how she felt called, and how that calling was confirmed by certain events that happened in her life at that time. And it really was a phenomenal story. If we had more time, I'd have her share it again. But the point being... God was listening to Melanie and the desires of her heart, and I trust that she will have them. But Melanie has given her life to Christ, as many of us have, and it has to be God's kingdom first. And obviously, sometimes we're not going to get that right. You don't wake up in the morning with a memo saying, this is what your day is going to look like, or this is what you should do. In fact, we struggle sometimes to know what we should do or where God's calling is, but that's okay. That just means that we really are putting God's kingdom first when we're, when we're struggling. We might get it wrong, 
that's what the cross is for. Our sins get in the way sometimes. We don't, that's all good. We live in grace. This isn't a get it right here, messed up teaching. Amen. Right. Grace. And God will give you what you need to make those decisions. But the, if the priority is messed up in any regard, if God is very high in your list of priorities, but still number two or number three, he might as well be number 300. It just doesn't matter. You have to die. That's why the language is so so severe, so extreme. You have to die to yourself. Amen. Amen. Sometimes dying to yourself means not being a martyr. Now I get to share some of my mistakes. It's a good time for Laura to leave, actually. Uh, oh, it is hot. It's not just me. Oh, I thought it was just me. I'm like, wow, preaching myself into a fervor here. Amen. Who's got a fever? I do. I'm really hot. What's that? No, it's not. I'll, I'll speak louder. <clears throat> well, I haven't said anything yet. Sometimes dying to yourself means letting go of being a martyr, which sounds somewhat paradoxical. Let me share a story about my own foolishness that will enlighten you with regard to this fact. Laura remembers this well. When I was a younger... You're wondering what I'm going to say, aren't you? Oh, you'll remember soon enough. When I was a younger Christian, and I was... um, What's the word? Wooing? Laura? I guess that's a word we can still use today, right? Uh, Not wooing? No, it's a good word. Is it a good word? Okay. I wooed, um, and Laura was living in Seattle, and I was living uh, here in Urbana, and uh, the worship pa- some of you remember this, the worship pastor of the church left to go to Milwaukee, which was just a mean thing of him to do, but that's another story, um, and I was left with these choices, and the choice for me was to go to seminary, marry Laura, if she had said yes, I wouldn't presume things at that point, but I can presume it now, I hope, anyway ask Laura to marry me and go to seminary at at Regent College in Vancouver and start that next chapter of my life that I felt called to. And God gave me a very uh, generous gift in this regard in that I I received a scholarship from Regent uh, for my first year's tuition free, which was a lot of money, like a lot of money, which we're still paying off now. And I said no, and I... I said no prayer. I don't want to give the impression that I was somehow off in my own world. I, I did it because I thought my church needed me to transition to whatever was coming next in the church, that they needed me as a worship pastor, and they couldn't do without me. I mean, I wouldn't have said that out loud. That would not be, Words would not escape my list. But deep down inside, I was being sort of a martyr and not having a sense of God's sovereignty over the events of things. And, I, and that was a mistake, um, which became clear to me as time unfolded and as my wife would, I think, candidly agree as we pay off my student loans monthly. <laughs> um, but it, it was my point being I hadn't quite got my head around dying to myself. I thought I had, but I hadn't quite got my head around, you know what? Dying to myself means letting go also of me being the good guy or the martyr or the savior, that I'm not that either. That means really I'm just some... Joe Schmo, like everybody else, and God's work is going to keep on going, even if I'm gone. And that was a that's that's a bit of cold water, um, but it's also very freeing, right? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Hey, 
I could walk out of here today. You guys will find a new preacher or close the church or whatever. Go to different. You don't need me. You'll be 10 years from now, I'll be like, Seth who? Oh, yeah, I remember him. Well, I hope that's not the case. But. but the point being, God doesn't need me to see his plans through. That is, a, that is a form of not dying to yourself. So, we must die to ourselves. We have to kneel before the throne of God and say we reject our lives, the lives that our flesh, as Paul calls it, desires. And we embrace the death of our desires and our hopes and our needs, and we say, literally, to hell with that. I don't use that word lightly. God, we want your life. We want to follow your desires. We're not even sure what they are from day to day, but we know that's what we want. We want your life, not our own. And then life really does become an adventure, no matter where you are. (laughs) And you'll know you're doing it right, that you really are dying to yourself, because it really does feel, at least in my experience, like a kind of death. It really does. It does feel like a part of you is dying. That, like some part of you that you are holding on to and is precious to you and that means something to you is going. And you kind of want it, you, you sort of claw at it sometimes. It, it, it really is a death. It's not just a, a, you know, a, an extreme metaphor. We must become lesser. We must become less that Christ may be glorified among us. That is a kind of death that comes with a cost. It's always real and always felt, and I don't minimize it. I would never minimize it as a preacher. As, as a, that's, that's a real cost. Just as Jesus' death was a real cost. And the blessings that follow are inexpressibly glorious inexpressibly glorious. The resurrection life, as we sometimes refer to it, has no equal that I have seen on this earth. I don't want you to think that this Easter 2017, that I'm using the words inexpressibly glorious in a lazy, hyperbolic, preachery, sermonizing kind of way. I really mean both words. I can't express it, and it is glorious. To try and speak of one's experience of dying to oneself and becoming a part of God's kingdom and being ministered to daily by the Holy Spirit who somehow, amazingly, effortlessly, lovingly shapes your character over the course of years without your effort, (laughs) thank God, in spite of yourself, thank God, is a glorious thing to experience and a glorious thing to see and the people I know and love who've given their lives to Christ for years shapes a beautiful thing. So what words can I speak? I wish I could preach in such a way to communicate what joy is found in this dying and this coming to life again. I wish I knew those words. A series of words that I could relay to all of you what the risen Christ can do. There just aren't words. I would certainly speak them if I knew them. Jesus says, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. At the heart of all the battles of the world, at the heart of the battle of your very soul and my soul, is what we believe. What do we believe about ourselves, 
about this world out there and about God, if there is a God, and about death. What do we believe? That's the most important thing. That's the crux of it. It should be axiomatic in this society, but it's not. But it should be axiomatic that you are what you believe. You are what you believe. We all know in the postmodern world, as it's called, that subjectivity is king. What's going on inside matters the most to a lot of people today. Just look at our culture. I'm shifting gears here a little bit, but I'm going to bring it back at the end. I promise. Amen? Amen. <laughs> well, hold that thought. <laughs> we spend, and I do mean we, I'm not shaking my finger at the world, I mean me too, we spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money battling our moods. Do we not? Amen. Amen. We want our moods we want our moods to be better. This is too loose to bang. Sorry. We want our moods to be better. We want to feel better. We want to be happier. We want to be optimistic people. We don't want to be sad or upset or dour. We want to be liked in addition to that. We want to be popular. We want to be charismatic. We want to be always and forever in the best mood ever. And we're willing to spend oodles of money on this on everything from Netflix to prescription drugs to special diets to bigger houses, newer cars, all these things. I, I check off most of those boxes, by the way, that I just mentioned. All those things to make us happier, and sometimes they do make us happier. You know, I'm not, even, I'm not knocking these things. I'm just talking about where our hearts are at. We want to be happy. It's written into our founding documents, for Pete's sake. The presumption of what we want is right there in American scripture. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Amen? Amen. And honestly, I think for, for a secular society, uh, that's the best you can do. So I'm not knocking that either. I think I'm, I, I'm glad I live in a society that talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think that's a wise way to talk about trying to live together in community. So I'm not knocking that. But as Christians... That would read very differently. If the Puritans, if the pilgrims had written the, that, that, it would sound differently. Uh, how would it sound? Um, that you, you have the gift, you have the right, by God's word, if you choose, to eternal life, freedom in Christ, and holiness. The right to pursue holiness. And so as Christians, we can look at the life, liberty, and happiness and say, you know, that's good, and we're glad it's there, but that's not what we're pursuing. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is just too small a thing for me because I'm going to die, for starters, and I'm a slave to my sin, secondarily, and I tried pursuing happiness, and that didn't get me very far. Holiness got me a long way. I've got a long way to go in that regard. I haven't checked that box fully yet. Shocking. But, but it has taken me somewhere. And praise God, it was not my effort. It was just my belief. It was just my faith. It was just saying to Christ, you know what? I haven't a clue. I will trust you. I'll just trust you. And I'm going to go about, I did everything just exactly the same in my life as I was doing before. I didn't, didn't move to a different, okay, I didn't move to a different town. But the, at any rate, my life carried on with my same personality, my same sins, my same, um, my life. But I just said, okay, Jesus, I'll trust in you. And then he started working in me. And that is the good news. It wouldn't be good news if it was just like, Here's one other thing for you to do. Now you have to be holy too. Good luck. And amen, let's go to communion. Even though it doesn't mean much. 
No, that's not the good news. But in our churches, we fall into this trap. I fall into this trap. We do this. We fall into this trap because people come to church looking for happiness. I come to church some Sundays as the pastor looking to be happy. I want to leave church happier. I want to be content. I want all of you to be happy. It makes me unhappy when you're unhappy. And there's too many of you because someone's always unhappy, so I'm always going to be unhappy. It's maddening. And this isn't even that big a church. I don't know how the bigger church people do it. Where was I? Um, right. So we feel like church should make us feel better. We want to be happy. And we might say things like, loving God will make you happy, or Jesus wants you to be happy. And there's enough truth in that that it's seductive. I mean, there's, there is truth in that. That's not, those aren't untruthful things to say. But again, it's too shallow. It's, too, it's not the gospel. It's something else. Yes, Jesus wants you to be happy. But Jesus also tells you to take up your cross and die. So, you know, be careful of that happiness. Church is a space of worship, not of feeling better. If it becomes a place of feeling better, then it becomes a very dangerous place to be. Very dangerous place to be. It becomes not a space of reverence, but of emotional uplift. And it can be so hard that idolatry rests so easily in our heart. It can be very hard to know when you've crossed that line. You know, have we become just a place of just feeling good about ourselves? Because, you know, look at us. We're awesome. We, amen, yes, amen. We are awesome. And gosh darn it, we're, well, whatever. Our people like us, yes. But it does happen in churches. I know I've been to churches, and I know I have, I have adopted that into my soul sometimes. Of This is a place of happiness. This is not a place of happiness. Great unhappy things happen here. They do. Terrible things happen here. And we hurt each other sometimes. God help you if you go to church looking for happiness. Go to church looking for broken people who are just as sinful as you, but a God who will forgive us all together. That's what you go to church looking for. And if the preacher is preaching anything different, you know, come to Cornerstone, <laughs> where it's better and people are happy. Uh, see how easy that is? You know, sometimes we're supposed to feel terrible at church. That's the Good Friday Easter uh, dynamic, right? Those two things come together in our worship. They, we don't, I mean, we have the, the moments of worship and the Good Friday service, and well, we've been at it, but that's a different story entirely. But those two things come together in our worship. You will not always feel happier at church. There's feel, there is feeling bad about something in your life, and then there's feeling convicted about your personal sin. That is not a good feeling. And sometimes that happens at church. I have felt convicted about personal sin at church, and I am not happy about it. I, I'm not smiling. Those tears aren't tears of joy. Well, sometimes they're tears of joy, but in those instances, they're just tears. Church is not always a great feeling. Easter is a time of celebration. It is. It's a time of joy. But it's also a day of warning. It's a day of warning. It's a road sign. And what that sign says is bridge out ahead. Take this exit. That's the Easter message. Bridge out ahead. Your life is coming apart. Here's an exit. It's not all bunnies and flowers. Not that you thought it was. <laughs> so the best pastoral advice I can give this Easter, I'll think of something different next Easter, is search yourselves and search your hearts. 
Easter is the first fruits of God's new creation, and it will be glorious. The new creation will be glorious for those who have died to themselves. It's that simple. If you've died to yourself, it will be glorious, hands down, no caveats. For those who simply have religious affection, as Jonathan Edwards would have termed it, God bless him. For those whom God is a box on their checklist of things they can feel good about, or if God's your buddy coming with you everywhere you go, you should be a little anxious. I should be a little anxious if I spend my day feeling that way about God. I feel like the prophet Amos should be read in every church on every Easter Sunday. It'll never happen. But I feel like this passage from Amos chapter 5 should be read every Easter, in addition to all the other glorious things in the empty tomb. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Happy Easter. (laughs) Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house, rested his hand on the wall, and a snake bit him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. This is God speaking. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, though you're in fellowship together, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. Boy, I don't want to hear that. (laughs) Also, your guitar playing sucks. (laughs) Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And it goes on. But Easter is a warning, too, to die to ourselves. And when we die to ourselves, justice does go on, and righteousness does flow like a stream. It does happen. We do see it. This is not a space that's designed to make you feel better about yourself. I hope that's true of every church. I'm not just talking about this space here. Not a space designed to make you feel better about yourself or to make me feel good about myself. From the preacher to everybody else, no, not what it's about. It's devoted to worshiping God, following Christ, and experiencing the Holy Spirit. Our feelings have very little to do with all those things. You're welcome to walk in here with any feeling. You feel murderous, jealous, sad, depressed, clinically depressed. This is the place for you. Or you can feel joyous, lighthearted, happy. You know, come and bring that to God. If we together can lay down our life at the altar and die together, give up the burden of our destinies, and they are a burden. If we together can die to ourselves simply because God is worth dying for, never mind his sovereign claim on your life, then what reward is ours? What unthinkable glory are we inheriting? What freedom becomes ours even now in this place of sin and violence? I can only make a partial list about the glory of the resurrected life here and now, but I'll give you this partial list. I think it's a good way to end here. When you die to yourself, then as I just read, you will see God's justice and righteousness at work in the world. Yes, imperfectly. Yes, done by broken people. But you'll see it. 
and you'll see that light shine through sometimes of justice being done, and it will make your heart sing. It's a beautiful thing. I don't think I would have seen it had I not given my life to Christ. I would have missed it. When you die to yourself, number two, when you die to yourself, your shoulders will become lighter. Your burden will become easier. And this is one of the reasons it's good to remind ourselves to die to ourselves regularly because we, bit by bit, we put more and more in our shoulders that belongs rightfully on the shoulders of Christ. But your shoulders will become lighter because you're not carrying the burden of your destiny and you're not carrying the burden of your brothers' and sisters' destinies. And you can't carry any of them. And that's a great place to be. It's not a sociopathic place to be. It's not that you don't care. It's not that you don't love. In fact, your love will grow. But you just know that burden is not yours to carry. That's a blessed place to be. I wish I remembered that better. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest, Jesus speaking. Take my yoke upon you. Die to yourself. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's number two. Number three, when you die to yourself, God will make you a gospel story. When you die to yourself, God will make you a gospel. You'll become the gospel of Nanette or the gospel of Chris or what have you. Your birth will be a celebration, just as Christ's birth was. Your life will be a witness even as Christ was a witness uh, throughout Israel. With many a stumble, to be sure, there are some differences. (laughs) But nevertheless, your life will be a witness. Your speech will be true. You'll say true things all the time. I don't know that I would have done that without Christ. Your God will walk with you. You will not walk through the valley alone. God will walk with you. And at the end, your death will be a victory song, just as Christ's death is a victory song. Your death is not the end. No grave will hold you. That's the Easter promise. Amen. And I will tell you this full-throatedly with as much fervor and strength as I can. If you do this and you die to yourself and you walk with Christ, you may or may not live a happier life. I don't know. I kind of don't care. I'm not even sure if my life would have been happier or unhappier if I hadn't given my life to Christ. But those things, those things I mentioned, the resurrection life, I know that I would not have had any part in that. What would it mean if I had died and they said, Seth lived a happy life? It's a small and meaningless word for a life. For a life. I want to live a life deeply and powerfully led by a God who loves me. I don't care about the rest. Did David, did King David lead a happy life? Did Moses lead a happy life? Did Mary, for that matter? Or Jesus? I mean, there's lots of words you could use to describe their lives. Happy is not the first one that pops to mind. But you wouldn't call them sad either, would you? You wouldn't call them depressed or nihilistic or bitter. So, We find the abundant life in our death, even as Christ did. 